The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Okay, so today, I mean, this is going to be interesting because it's touching a subject that's dear to my heart, training. Yeah, absolutely. Our guest started out working on a maintenance engineering apprenticeship before moving on to the University of Liverpool, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in honors, uh, with honors, building services engineering. Uh, there's a lesson here for our listeners. Uh, this guy launched his career with four years of hands-on experience, followed up by four years of academic skills right there. That's a win. Then went on to do project work with Bechtel, just a small engineering firm. <laughs> no big one. <work. laughs> and OTH International. And from there, he shifted over to the Building Service Research and Information Association, uh, where he served as a technical author, trainer, and facilitator and researcher. And for 14 years now, he's owned Clear Construction, where he applies his 40 years of experience in working with project teams and facilities management personnel. That work is involved in maintaining buildings, delivering projects, studying projects, and writing about project delivery and training building environment professionals. Welcome to the show, Glenn Hawkins. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Glenn, we love your origin story. Adam and I have talked many times about the importance of having diversified skills and knowledge. You started out with your hands on some stuff, went on to study the academics, and then, of course, transfer that information onto a career. Tell us more about it. Yeah, well, I think whilst my work career started age 16 when I started my maintenance engineering apprenticeship, I think my professional story really started 15 years later. So it's now 1995. I'm working for a large international construction company called Bechtel. So I spent five or six years working on a diverse range of different sort of international construction projects, as diverse as uh, oil refinery project in Kazakhstan, I'd worked for several years on the delivery of Disneyland Paris in France. And I'd worked both on the design side, I'd worked on the site side. And uh, throughout those years, it was constantly occurring to me that we could be doing things a lot better, both how we executed the site-based stage of a project, but also how we could do better during the stage before we start on site to better start set up the site-based stage of a project. So I was faced with a bit of dilemma, like lots of other people. Do I just put up with doing things not as good as we could do them because often you know when we're working on a project there's such a pressure to deliver that you don't have time to sort of step back put all the corrective measures in place and actually do things differently so I was faced with a dilemma right do I just complain 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 like everybody else that I work with or do I actually try to do something differently and try to in some degree sort of put right all these things that I could see needed to be put right So in simple terms, I was looking for a way to do that. And at the same time, there was a job advert to to lead a two-year research program, international research program, into construction site productivity. So I quit Bechtel, took this position up, and led this international research program. 
And the conclusion of that, after studying projects in the USA, Canada, Sweden, all over the, uh, the UK as well, the report that we wrote concluded that over 60% of all time that was spent on construction sites was wasted. Either due <laughs> to delay. 60%? Yeah, over 60% of the time was ineffective, let's put it that way. <laughs> due to either a combination of delays that prevented people from installing or constructing, or because when they were working, they were not as efficient or effective as they could be for a variety of reasons. So I produced this report and it caused, I don't know, quite a lot of consternation in the industry. There was quite, there was some positive reactions, but there was quite a lot of negative reaction, personal attacks and all this sort of stuff, basically saying that so much time was being wasted. And really, that was the start of the career that I've led since 1995, either trying to intervene front end on projects to try to help them set up projects in a way that could do things differently, either to write books that would some degree help people do things differently or to develop and deliver training courses that would help people do things better. So, um, yeah, 1995 was really all when it began with me, although I was 15 years into my career by then. So, Glenn, when did that report come out? It was published in 1997. It was called Improvement Site Productivity. And, yeah, it went down really, really well. There was, say, there was a lot of positive reaction, but there was a lot of negative reaction as well. Like, our listeners need to understand... So 1997, and here we are, 2022, 2022, Mm -hmm. and there's a company in China that is building multi-story high-rise. Like, well, they have one project on the books right now. It's over 60 stories. Their construction project timeline is less than a year to build this building. This same Mm -hmm. company has has videos online about building much smaller buildings, like 20 stories, in several months hospitals in weeks. Mm-hmm. So here we are. So your report came out in 1995, 60% time wasted on a job site. And here we are modern days for our, our purposes. And we have companies that are building high rises in under a year. Yeah. And yet we still have traditional construction practices that that same building anywhere else in the world, if it was following standard construction practices, would take three, four years to build it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the key recommendations that came off this piece of work was that we have to change what we refer to as our construction philosophy, that the projects that I studied were characterized by traditional techniques of lots and lots of people taking lots and lots of time to put lots and lots of bits and pieces together on site. And those sort of traditional work and practices have pretty much remained the same since, I don't know, probably since we constructed the pyramids. <laughs> so one of the key things that we shared was that, that we can, one, we can set much better set up the site-based stage of project delivery through all sorts of different things, you know. But fundamentally, we could actually change the way that we construct by embracing what you've referred to then as maybe off-site manufacture, modern methods of construction, whatever you want to call them. And some of the work that I did off the back of that initial piece of work did look at what we would call product innovation at sort of component level or looking at modular construction, prefab, off-site manufacturing, all that type of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot lot to unpack there, right? So just for our listeners, right, for young people in their career, think about this. Glenn left school, did hands-on work, went to university, wound up working for Bechtel. So if you don't know who Bechtel are, they are the industrial military complex of construction firms, right? Huge. You know, they build cities and towns and countries. This is not a small undertaking at any level. Their idea mm-hmm. of a small job is a billion dollars probably, right? So there's that. And then Glenn left that and became a research 
person and then went on to do something else. So, you know, to quote a podcast alumni, Steve Burroughs, you know, it is a great career in the built environment. You can go so many places with it, do so many things, there are so many opportunities, right? So that's that. I just wanted to put a pin in that because you're again, you're a good example of, you know, no, no career is a straight line up and to the right. It's a zigzag everywhere, right? And you've wound up where you are. And it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so is that. And I would, I would agree that the built environment is an incredible industry to work in. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the people are good, the range of projects that you can get involved with, the particular individual jobs that you can undertake. There's such incredible diversity and it's constantly evolving as yeah. needs of clients evolve, as construction design practices construction technology evolve as well. It's incredible. It's ever-changing. I just want to unpack what you said and then what Robert said about Chinese construction. So, you know, back in 97, back in the day, this is a known phenomenon, right? There's an issue here. It's productivity. And it's not that it wasn't known, but you probably just formalized it through and legitimized it through a research project, right? Because when someone throws... Yeah, I just shot a big light on it. Yeah. When <laughs> someone throws research dollars and has someone credible write a report, it's a bit hard to ignore that, right? You're just putting something out there right and then yeah. you know this was pre-social media so you didn't get cancelled but you got a bit of like punches in the face right from a few people <laughs> I did I got some personal attacks and threats yeah, yeah. I really did yeah because yeah. people don't like being told they're not great right no. so the question is you know the Chinese approach is what I call a swarm approach right they work with numbers they throw people at it and time at it and they literally just it's like a tsunami overwhelming a job, right? They just, mm-hmm. I've seen this in the Middle East when you go to a Chinese contractor site. There's people everywhere and they just go nuts on it. So that's one approach. And then the other approach, which you can combine with the Chinese approach, is modular construction, smart construction, off-site. I guess the dream is the swarm approach with the detailed design followed by modular construction is maybe the way to go. But the real question is, why is it so hard to change something, Right. There's culture, there's laws, there's working practice. But I don't think anyone would disagree that things could be better. So why mm-hmm. do you think, Glenn, and it's you to answer because you did that report, <laughs> why do you think it's so slow to change? Oh, that's a really big question to answer. No small questions really on the edifice complex. None. <laughs> None. One of the things that I've always said is, is that there is a lot of money in construction and that you can actually still be that inefficient but you can still make money. Yeah. That's one of the things. Yeah. And I know that profit margins traditionally have been quite small in construction, but people and companies are still making money with hugely inefficient project delivery practices. Yeah. That could be one factor. I think we also have to understand that the nature of construction is it's a hugely cyclical type of construction industry. So to properly gear up for off-site manufacture through whatever off-site manufacturing resources you need, factories, technology, robots, whatever, in order to actually properly invest with that, I think you are better off really having a long-term consistent demand to make that investment worthwhile. That's interesting. And Yeah, with the cyclical nature of um, construction, with the often sort of fragmented nature that we deliver projects under, with the price-driven nature of construction, yet there's a whole set of circumstances that haven't really lent themselves very well to really fully embracing completely different construction techniques. There's lots and lots of more that I probably can't think of off the top no, of my head. No, but that insight you just coughed up there, that the, Ooh, the demand curve, the invariable, which prevents investment, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, if you've got X dollars to invest, you want to invest it in something that's got a pretty regular demand curve. Yeah. Well, if you throw yeah. in then the, the complexity and lack of standardization, then it compounds that problem. If you yeah. could actually develop construction methods and modules in a standardized way, then you could actually inventory and suppress the cyclical nature. Like you could actually, you won't stop it, but you could at least build, it would become like a capacitor within the systems. So this goes back to architecture, right? And the creativity that's created within architecture, preventing standardization, which of course then feeds into your comment. I think that was really insight. That was real insight, man. You earned yeah. your, you your feed, Ed. Just, that's a wrap, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to understand as well just going down the off-site manufacturer route is not the solution to all the issues. In order to fully embrace off-site manufacture, whatever you want to call it, modular construction, modern methods of construction, we fundamentally need to change particularly the front end of construction project delivery. You know, maybe to have more money available at that front end, mm-hmm. to make better decisions at the front end, to get much better clarity about our um, multidisciplinary design and specifications. What I refer to as the project logistics, this process of actually delivering stuff to site, offloading it, moving it into its sort of final position, connecting it up, that is, of course, fundamentally different if you're moving big, large modules around than it is with the traditional technique of a bag of bits, a bag of tools, and a couple of fellas, you know? So logistically, the, the construction process needs to change as well. Yeah, because there's so many facets, right? There's design, there's logistics, there's manufacture, there's construction. It's it's a multi, it's a multiple, it's like a Rubik's cube of problems, right? But yeah. just riffing on the um, the demand curve, right? So maybe the answer to the demand issue is the construction industry fragments, right? So what I mean by that is someone who could a client who could provide a huge amount of predictable demand, like. Someone building social housing, now we're going to build X units per year for 10 years. Mm-hmm. That would be enough to enable someone to invest, maybe, right? Yeah. Or Department of Defense type client who says, right, we're going to build X number of buildings. You know, the US military, they build buildings everywhere, right? Bechtel. Yeah. Everything goes back to Bechtel, by the way. Mm-hmm. So they build buildings everywhere. So that is a demand curve that you could say, right, they could commit to a pipeline and the, to be on that job, you've got to commit to invest and innovate, right? That's the yeah. only way I could see that happening. I don't know. I'm just riffing there, but, you it know. It could be a key way of making it happen, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah and then yeah, you're locking you in demand. People, yeah, and people and firms yeah. who are committed to that. Then the market fragments into like the, let's call them the long-term framework type firms, and then the yeah. other firms who do the speculative type work, right? Which is, yeah. and in the speculative type work, you accept it's, it's more costly because it's more one-off. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that is a great insight you've highlighted there. You know, that is one of the big issues, right? Why would I invest if the demand's up and down? Yeah. It's always about the money, man. Yeah. I wanted to put the sidebar here. I, just, I was thinking about when you, when you released that report and you took some personal hits across your bow. There are two times in a person's career where you can rock the boat. One is when you're young, smart, and right. Yeah. And you don't really give a rat's ass what anybody says because eventually you're going to be proven right. And when you're old and retired like me and Adam, when you can basically tell people to pound sand. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. It's a barbell thing, right? (laughs) It totally is. It totally is. One of the most gratifying moments, I think, in my career is to be able to stand up in a crowd. This actually happened in Saskatoon here recently. And I was asked way back when to give some predictions about the industry and subjects that needed to be studied. And then we did a follow-up three years ago, and we did a follow-up again like a few months ago. And 95% of the things that we talked about that caused stir, and one of the publishers was in the audience, and I said to them, you know, like, how many of the things have come true? And it was like 95% of things that we talked about came true. When we were talking about them way back when, they were like out in left field. Like, people thought, what the hell is Bean talking about? Yeah. Right? But then you can stand up in front of an audience, just like you have, Glenn, in front of the industry and said, we were right. You were wrong. Pay us. <laughs> so I just, you know, wanted to bring that up that because part of the, the edifice complex is mentoring to young students. And when you when you are passionate as you were and you're and you have really good insight into things, don't be afraid to stand your ground mm. and you know build a career on it. And as you have, yeah. eventually it'll come back and you'll be right, and time will prove you to be yeah. right. You got to be, it has, yeah. it requires what? Insight, confidence, right? And you have to have the ability to see things on a continuum. I think those are really important character traits. Yeah. yeah. I've no, I've no real desire to be proven right. I always say to people that read my books that come on my training courses, I don't really need you to agree with what I'm, <laughs> what I've written, what I'm telling you on the training course. Yeah. As long as some degree people leave the course challenging perhaps conventional way that they've approached product delivery, then by and large, I've done my job, you know. Isn't that the teacher's role to create, to generate yeah. critical thinking, right? Yeah. Allegedly what I've always universities. tried to do, yeah. <laughs> what I've always tried to do is do whatever I do. Rather than try to do everything, I've tried to do a number of, a limited number of things to the best of my ability. So rather than really look at construction in real general terms or the the built environment. Whilst I have got a peripheral vision of that, I've really only focused really on sort of two fields, which is the building services, which the Americans call the MEP, and the commissioning. Yeah. Associated with buildings. So, but what I've tried to do is that whenever I've tried to put something out into the marketplace, I've tried to make it as robust as I possibly could, either by doing some really, really good, robust research that preceded yeah. it, or when I prepare a training course, I try to put a really lot of effort into making sure that the, the training course is really well put together, that it's got robust points of references and so on and so forth. So to some degree, whilst I don't want people to agree with what I'm saying, I can maybe engage in some meaningful conversation with them to maybe debate what they do as opposed to what I'm saying and so on and so forth. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. Just as a, another sidebar, I just brought, brought up some statistics that we talked about in terms of antiquated methods within the construction industry, just to uh-huh. give some perspective to our audience. So the Toyota Corolla, you can build it in less than 24 hours, a Tesla three to five days, 
A 600 horsepower combine for agriculture, less than 14 days. The SpaceX Falcon 9 first stage rockets, less than 14 days to build a freaking rocket, right? Anyways, yeah, so going through this whole list, Boeing 747, they can crank them out in less than three months. This one was real interesting. The Royal Caribbean Symphony of the Seas, I think right now is one of the largest cruise liners on the ocean. Think about it, right? It houses something like several thousands of people. There's multiple kitchens. The navigational system on that thing is so sophisticated. I mean, it makes anything, anything that's related to transportation look amateur-like, right? They've got healthcare facilities. They've got you know sanitation facilities. They've got power plants for not only propelling the ship, but also for powering up. You know, it's an, it's like there's something like 7,000 people that occupy that ship when it's under full sail, right? Less than two years to build it. That's a small town. It's a small town. And it's infrastructure. Right? And a five-star hotel all in and one. five-star less than hotel. Two Less than two years. Come on, man. Like, I mean. You sound like I, Joe Biden. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so look, when you throw that out, right, just take that one you know, a massive cruise ship and all the complexity that that involves in two years, start to finish, right? Yeah. Yes, people will say, well, you can build a skyscraper in two years. Yeah, everything goes great. You've got the site cleared. It's ready. The design is good. Yes, right? But really, it's nearly three or four, realistically, if you take it from concept to delivery, right? So it's almost like twice as long as a ship, right? And probably the skyscraper is the nearest comparable to a ship, right? It's just huge and big and got complexity. So there's room to improve. Now, this, that's a good segue on to training. I know Glenn primarily, I've known Glenn in the industry because, spoiler alert, we're both Brits. I've known Glenn a long time in, from I the industry as like someone I see. I've only known him recently personally for the last two or three years. But Glenn's always stood out as someone who does training. And I recently took his commissioning management course so we both worked on the new CIVZ commissioning code M together last year. Glenn was a principal author on that. I was just the annoying idiot reviewing it. And then Glenn tailored his commissioning management course to that new code. And I took that in September and it was excellent. It was really good. And I did a little bit of research recently. So I said, yeah, how many commissioning management courses are there in the world? But it turns out Glenn's course is the only course in the world that is available in the whole world. <laughs> so, Glenn, tell us about that course and where it came from and why you're doing it. Wow. Yeah. So build I've, up. <laughs> I've been delivering training courses about commissioning and the management of the commissioning process probably since about 2010. Around that time, I wrote a book about the commissioning process and this management for an organization called Bizria. And off the back of that, I developed and delivered a training course with that book as the principal point of reference. And I've been delivering that ever really since. And then about, what, three years ago, I got approached by the Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineers to assume this authoring role on the new Commissioning Code M, Commissioning Management. So we worked on that for over a year. And as Adam said, he was part of the steering group. And then it was evident that um, with the way that that book was written, what it in the way that it reframed commissioning and demanded that clients and their project teams do things differently, particularly before they start on site, that I had to go back into my existing training course and update it in accordance with this publication that was produced, it was published in June 2022. 
so as Adam said, uh, it was published in June 2022, and I spent July and August updating the training course, and then have started now to deliver training courses about it. Who typically comes on that? I know I came on because I was curious, you know, because we've been working together. I thought I'd better check it out and support what you're yeah. doing. But who typically goes on that course? We get a really broad cross-section of built environment professionals. I would say the primary group of professionals that we get on it are either commissioning management people who work in the field of commission management or commissioning engineers per se that are looking to sort of upskill and progress into commissioning management. But also, particularly increasingly over the last five years, we've had a lot of people that work on the client side of the built environment. We've had a lot of people that work for main contractors, specialist building services contractors, project management consultancies, cost consultancies, and other sort of front-end project professionals. So we get quite a mixed group of people typically now on those courses. I'm delivering a two-day version of the course actually in two weeks' time. And on that course, of the 12 people that we've got on the course, only one of them work in a field that's directly associated to commissioning. The other 11 come from those other sort of disciplines that I've just referred to. Wow. Hey, just so our audience knows, you made reference to uh, Berizia, I guess it is? And then Slytria, yeah. Yeah. Collectively, what kind of membership are we talking about? Any idea, Adam? So Bizria is a, let me explain what it is for our non-British listeners. So Bizria is the Building Services Research and Industry Association, something like that. Is that right? Research and Information Association. That's it. So close. Anyway, so they've been around a long time. Mm. They were a bit of a quango originally. They were funded by the UK government for research. And now they're fully independent and they're funded by industry and donations and various publishing activities they do. But mm-hmm. they've always had this high standing in the UK because they're, they're uh, considered an impartial research and they specifically research building services as a niche, right? Mm-hmm. And also yep. they're involved in uh, researching and doing testing of the whole envelope because you have to test like envelope leakages in the UK as part of the building code now building regulations. So they're involved in that. So that's basically a building code requirement, by the way. In the UK, buildings have to be tested for infiltration, exfiltration. You know, how good is it built? How well is it built? How airtight is it? And that's all the big buildings, not just the small residential ones. It's all about commercial. So that's uh, that's mm-hmm. been had a high impact. But so Bizria has this, this place in the sort of mythology and the canon of being an independent research association, a source of knowledge, source of truth. You know, if they publish it, it's considered to be pretty gold AAA standard right, yeah. stuff, right? And Glenn is someone who's uh, worked and for them and published on their behalf and written for them. So, but what they do, they occupy a strange space. So, just to use the analogy, compare it to ASHRAE. In the UK, you have the Chart Institute of Building Services, and they write the equivalent of the ASHRAE design codes and various other specialist codes and standards. So, they typically tell you what to do. And then Bizria have this little niche where they take that information and they tell you how to do it in a best practice Mm -hmm. way with some research applied. So it's not ASHRAE. SIBS is more ASHRAE, but it is a little bit ASHRAE because ASHRAE do have a lobbying and a research side to them, right? So if you mush them together, it would be just like ASHRAE, but it's not. So Bizra is, I personally think it's a bit adrift at the moment. It's looking for a real purpose because publishing's gone on, research has gone on, but they still have very high standing and you pay to be a member. So all you people in the Middle East who put in this in your PQs, you can't be certified by Bizra. You can't be a certified Bizra commission engineer. 
I see PQs like that all the time, right? Bizra mm-hmm. is a trade association and you join it, you pay, it's £1,700 a year and you get access to all their publications and companies join them, ASG are members. And it's a sign that you're, it's one way as a business, you can contribute to industry R&D by joining Bizra and they take those dollars and they convert them into research and publish papers. That was a long-winded off. <laughs> why I ask the question is because, you know, we do cater to an international audience yeah. and those two organizations, you know, carry a big stick and to be able to do work, to be requested to do work, to volunteer to do work within those organizations mm. is not lighthearted. Like it's, no. this is, this is the real game and people need to appreciate the value that Glenn and others like Glenn bring to the table. So thank you for yeah. that. Just to put a chair on that. I mean, uh, being invited, to work for Bidria and publish on their behalf, that's a high coup. That's the highest standard. You know, they're platforming you and the, the, the other side, that bargain is you've got to deliver a real high standard, right? Because they can't put something out that embarrasses them. You know, one thing I, I criticize Bidria and Sibsi for is they don't really appreciate how much influence they have outside the UK. Mm. Yeah. In the UK, they're very important because they set the rules, they are the rules, right? But they have a huge impact outside the UK, particularly in old British areas of influence like the Middle East. You know, and they, their names get abused. They need to be a bit more engaged. Anyway, I'm not ranting. Let's get yeah. back to Well, Reva's the same way. Yeah. You know, I mean, the publications that Reva put out and the people behind the organization yeah. are, they're in the same league as everybody else. These are highly qualified, highly capable individuals that are putting together these publications. So yeah. I think when I think, when I think about Reva, Sibsi, Bizria, Ashray, you know, these are collectively, I don't know what our memberships would be, but it would be over 100,000 people. Oh, easily, easily, yeah. easily. I mean, it's, it's big numbers, considering it's, it's a niche, right? It's a big number. Well, it, it is a niche, but we're all brought together through the sciences of buildings. And, you know, when I think about the pandemic, for example, regardless of what your, where, your, where your stands are on it, when I think about uh, public health officials, infectious disease prevention and controls, I mean, relative to our industry, they're small. Like we, yeah. we carry a huge, huge influence around the world in terms of building. So if you are of the mindset, and I think now there's sufficient evidence to, to say that, you know, if in this case, SARS-CoV-2 was airborne, then that means every building that's out there is a potential place for this pathogen to exist. Correct. And by public health officials ignoring hundreds of thousands of people who have knowledge of airborne transmission, not just of pathogens, but particles, gases, whatever, it moves through the space based on physics, which are part of our building industry. Talk about an unused or un- underutilized resource. These people have really missed the boat in the last couple of years. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, <Hiya>. <laughs> I think that building services is anything but a niche. In the 21st century built environment, it's so incredibly important, the building services. Mm. If we step back and think about it fundamentally, that in the absence of the building services, all we would be delivering would be dead, useless carcasses of a building. (laughs) Because if you think about it, I, I really acknowledge that the structural and architectural elements of a building, they provide its form. It's internal, it's external appearance. They provide the sort of spatial relationships externally and internally. But it's only when we integrate the building services and we can get them to work properly that we can actually bring that building to life, make it work, and thereby give it any value 
from the people that are going to use, manage, operate, and maintain it. You strip out the building services, and as I said, all you've got is a dead eucalyptus carcass of a building. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It reminds me of the Roman ruins. I mean, yeah. when you go when you go to anywhere in you, you know Italy or whatever, and you look at those old buildings, and they are magnificent, but they're dead carcasses. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're, Adam they're, we, Lloyd Lloyd Alter, what he called it? The, he was part of the Rubble Club. I think you're now part of the Rubble. I'm Club. I'm part of the Rubble Club. Yeah. So the Rubble <laughs> Club is where you've you've been around long enough to see a building that you're involved in built, and then become old and be pulled down. I am 100 percent the Rubble Club. I walk around London I like and I go around business. Yeah. I think, oh yeah. Amro Bank, yeah, I worked on that. It's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what it's, it, it's interesting because I think that more than ever before that the building services are really, really important because, you know, we've got sort of ever-increasing sort of consumer demand for sort of quality, but not quality in just build, but quality in performance. Yeah. Sustainability is seen being now is a, a crucially important aspect of the built environment. Business sort of critical performance. People are looking for sort of resilience of their their buildings. You know, they want negligible downtime, good backups, and all, all absolutely all that sort of stuff. So it makes you know uh, communication. Uh, what do you think about it, right? People. If you think that people don't care about the built environment, consider this: Glenn and I were at a war ceremony last month, and I don't know, there was like two hundred plus people in that room, right? And it was horrific. The CO two levels were through the roof. The temperature, the humidity was high. Something was going on with the plant. It probably wasn't on, right? And everyone yeah. was going, screw this. We are not having this award ceremony here next year, right? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, yeah it does matter, right? That level of comfort is can be a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. So the reputation travels. I'll give you an example. So what I've been attending Ashford meetings now for well over 25, 30 years. We meet twice a year. And so that gives you an idea. You know, let's just say that we've had you know, I don't know, 60, 70 meetings over my career. And I can think of maybe two spaces that we were in that were in compliance with ASHRAE Standard 55. <laughs> that's, that's pathetic. That's, so that's pathetic. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so we know when we go back. So if there's a host hotel that we, you know, catered or has catered to our, our requirements over the last several decades, we know those spaces are uncomfortable. People come prepared to experience discomfort. So they're bringing clothes to warm up. They're clothes that they can take off. Yeah. You know, it's incredibly, yeah, I don't, anyways, that's another soapbox. Yeah. yeah the, um, the influence of building services, everybody needs to understand, extends way beyond comfort. You know, if we think about oh, things yeah. like um, security and really, really important now in the 21st century built environment is safety. Yes. Building safety and personal safety. Mm. This has been more important than ever. There was a really important piece of UK legislation published in the middle part of this year called the Building Safety Act. And this is in recognition that we needed to do something drastically different in terms of delivering assets that are actually much, much safer. And that can actually be delivered or we can't deliver safe buildings unless we get the delivery of the building services correctly executed. Yeah, as you yeah. think about it, right? So comfort, health, public health, personal health and public health, right? Safety, all security, these are all communication, right? Yeah, I movement. Have, I have one marble in my brain and when you said that, it just bounced back and forth. I can't believe that after thousands of years that we have to, that, that 
we're at a place where we got to develop a standard specifically for safety. That's just another insane thing. Yeah, because well, yeah, it's yeah. it's really becoming integrated. I hate this buzzword, but it is a good word, yeah. right? It's about integrating everything, right? It's about the building as a system, the holistic whole, right? You can't just be the public health engineer in isolation, right? You're the air conditioning dude in isolation. You've got to be part of everything. This is about what the integrated design process is. And this is where the industry is making that evolution, right? From just, hey, I've done my bit and pass it on. It's not pass the parcel now. It's like everyone around the table. The opposite of integrated is segregated. Yeah. Right? And so after thousands of years, segregated design practices have led to us to have to develop a standard on safety. <laughs> yeah. I want to use a swear word there. It begins with F, ends in K. Like, yeah. I can't believe it. But unfortunately, I mean, that, that specific building safety act in the UK was triggered by a horrific fire. You know, right. So unfortunately, when you think about it, someone had to die, but that to happen, yeah. right? Why are we but waiting for that sort events, of event yeah. to happen? You can see events of a similar nature around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this focus on um, whole building performance was something that we really tried to focus on, as you know, Adam, in yeah. the commissioning code M, that whilst we recognise that you have to validate the performance of individual system types, to some degree, you need to validate, firstly, what we've described as the operational interfaces and interdependencies between different systems. But also, you need to validate that the building can do what it needs to do as an in overall single building entity as well. Yeah, absolutely right. So the, the, you and I were very key in them, in them meetings about considering the integrated whole, right, rather than breaking it down. Because traditionally, absolutely. it's been a, yeah. a segmented thing. And then we were sort of, that was the whole reason I wanted to jump on that is because I wanted to bring it up to like where the thinking is going, not where it is, you know? Yeah. So, so you did a good job of reinforcing me on that. So thanks yeah. about that. Yeah, that was good. There are some advantages to being an asshole and that was one of them. <laughs> so I want to talk about going back to your training, something you said earlier. You said a lot of people that are coming on your courses now are not commissioning people because, you know, you would expect them to be interested in it, right? But it's like contractors and other people. So what do you mm -hmm. think is driving that trend? Is it more accountability? I think accountability is one of the issues. I think one of the key reasons is, is that increasingly there's fewer places to go unless you deliver construction projects well. Yeah. Also, um, I think that too often they've had their fingers burnt. They suffered the consequences of poorly delivered construction projects. And historically, one of the key reasons that projects have been poorly delivered is due to poor delivery of the building services and the commissioning associated with those building services. So I say you can go on repeatedly poorly delivering projects, knowing that those are some of the root causes, or actually you can think, right, I've had enough of that. Let's go, let's go back and try to deliver projects in a much sort of more intelligent, less dysfunctional way. And yeah. that's why I think I'm increasingly over time getting more and more sort of multidisciplinary or people from different disciplines that come on my courses and they actually work best when you have got people bringing all those different perspectives if you just have one cohort of people say the designers or the contractors invariably they don't really want to shoulder much of the blame they'll always point the finger and say yeah we did a crap job because they set the site-based stage of project up poorly or x y and z you know so if you've got different perspectives there I'm quite good as a bit of an agitator and a facilitator, a devil's advocate, and I can play one off against another and have some open discussion and see if we can get some general agreement about how things can be done better. 
So have you had any pushback from people on the courses? You know, like you get like a tough construction manager, they're going, oh, this is rubbish. What is this? Have you had any like light bulb moments or pushbacks from people like that? I've all, I wouldn't say I've had it as severe as to say that this is rubbish, but like anybody else, I'm trying to continually review and improve what I do, you know, to a degree where sort of I sort of focus maybe that I might be using the wrong word or saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or phrasing, you know, I go down to that really granular level. So I'm always trying to review and improve what I do, whether it's the, the core material of the course that I deliver or how I set up and facilitate the yeah. sort of breakout group exercises. But I've never really had anybody stand up or walk out and say, this is absolutely garbage. Well, that's always a plus Generally, when you're running been, a course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the same token, I don't think, I, I don't expect everybody to go skipping out of the room at the end of the course thinking, right, I'm going to r- completely radically sort of change everything that I've done up to this point in time. It's about intelligently taking on board some of the things that I perhaps said need to be done, going back to their workplace, contrasting it, comparing what I've maybe proposed with what they do, and come up with something that best suits their particular company, project team, or personal circumstances. So, yeah, yeah, I've never had anybody sort of um, walk out or storm off and say that's absolute garbage. So yeah, a lot of it comes back to the preparation, I think, that um, yeah. without being too egotistical, my stuff's good and it's well prepared. And as I say, it's got really sort of robust points of references. So you can't really argue with the, the quality of the material you may argue that it might not fit your own understanding of construction or your particular project yeah. circumstances, but you invariably can't argue with the quality of the material. God, that was such a British humble brag. You should be <laughs> like, my stuff is right, I'm a man. Hubris <laughs> <laughs> is a really bad characteristic of people, we so um no. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, prior to the good. pandemic, I would always let the research argue on my behalf, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think in the world of the building sciences that the sciences are pretty solid that you can still let the research argue on your behalf. In other words, you're just, you know, you take your own research work, but there's enough good stuff out there that you can make a solid story. It's very hard to difficult with the principles, the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. That doesn't apply to the health sciences. There's the entire world distrusts the research world because there's been so much conflict. There's, this is one of the problems with the uh, social media internet age we live in. Yeah. A lot of the curtains have been pulled back and sometimes behind the curtains, the Wizard of Oz is a really old dude, right? And uh, people are going, oh, that's not how I thought. That's not as solid as I thought. And the problem is, unless someone steps in that space and calms it down, it goes horribly into a horrible direction, right? And this is a moment, I think, for engineers and the built environment to step up and Fill that space, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, to, certainly uh, engineering departments in universities say no. That this is really where we should be going with this, with ventilation, with public health engineering, right? Yeah. And yeah, I think one of the things that we have going for us is if you think if you think about the the godfathers, the godmothers of building science that exist in the world today, most of them are pretty humble and will state that their knowledge came from making mistakes. And yeah. that we're always learning that the, and that dogma is a, is a dangerous place to, to believe in. And, I, and I'm thinking right now of guys like Dr. Joe Stebrook, who admittedly, you know, will tell you, yeah, we, we screwed up. But because of our screw-ups, we learned a lot. And that's what's influenced our, our yeah. positions and our beliefs today. 
And he'll say, we're not at a place where we've stopped learning. We're going to continue to learn and we're going to continue to make mistakes and we'll communicate that. But that, Adam, you make a point. Like there, if you, if you remove the veil, there are some old guys in the public health that just have stopped learning. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. right. And I don't think we see that in construction. So this leads on to the importance of training. So the upside of being in the social media, digital world we live in now is to be able to disseminate information and learning, teaching people has never been easier, right? So maybe what's missing is the supply that, you know, so this is why I'm fascinated by what you're doing, Glenn, right? So you've got this course and you deliver it over two days. The one I did was two-day in-person course. Personally, I like in-person course because I'm old and I'm an analog person, (laughs) although I do a lot of Whereas you also deliver that through digital means as well. So tell us how you're managing to do that. Yeah, so like you said, I deliver traditional classroom-based in-person face-to-face yeah. courses, and I agree with you. I still think that's the best form of teaching, education, yeah. at least in our field in the built environment. I deliver the same material in an online classroom in Microsoft Teams, and once again, I've put a lot of effort in to try to make uh, this online classroom and all the exercises in it interactive and engaging, and I've by and large been pretty good at uh, doing that. But both of those forms of education are what we call synchronous learning. So to make them work, I need to be there and the delegates need to be there. So in the classroom, they're with me, but online, like we are, you know, I'm at one end and they're at their computers at the same time. What I need to do, the next iteration for me is what Adam said, is to go maybe into the e-learning field, which they call a synchronous learning, where people can basically learn what they want, when they want, whenever they want. And that might involve, say, taking a one-day training course of six hours of contact time and translating that into 10, 30-minute e-learning modules. That's the next iteration for me. But once again, I don't want to do a really bad job of that. I don't just want someone to pay a fee and then click on a series of really poor-quality PowerPoint slides. Yeah. I want to be really visually engaging with lots of really interactive engaging knowledge checks and so on and so forth. And that takes time and money. Yeah, that's so, harder um, than you think, right? Because for me, for that to work for me as a student, I want to see the how-to in that, right? So yeah. say you had a 30-minute chapter, I want to, you to say, right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to show you how to do it. And it'd be a mixture of you doing things, solving equations, like laying it out, and then explaining why you're doing it and how you're doing it. That is actually yeah. really hard, I think. Yeah, it can all be done. And yeah. the built environment that we we work in, I think it lends itself fantastically to the production of those sort of, well, the training courses that I do because we could use yeah. photographs, videos, 3D walkthroughs, BIM models, whatever. But we can use that same visually rich material for these e-learning modules. So I think the industry that we work in, we could create some fantastic mm. e-learning modules. Several of my clients, and I've got some really big international construction clients, have approached me about producing e-learning modules for them for in-house delivery. But once they've gone away and examined what the costs are going to be to do it in the manner that I sort of described to them, none of them have actually come forward yet. They've basically said, no, we're just continuing with Microsoft Teams (laughs) or the face-to-face learning. Yeah. Yeah, So once again, yeah, I think the way to do it would be collectively to have – a collection of built environment organizations, each put a little bit of money in a central pot, develop some really stellar e-learning modules, and then they and the wider built environment could then benefit from it. 
Yeah, and they could be so, part of CPD, right? Like the ASHRAEs, the SIBSIs of the world. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So the material, we've pretty much got ready to go. Yeah. Okay, SIBSI and ASHRAE, if you're listening. It just needs to be translated to a e-learning format, yeah. That's how I got into commissioning code M. I put a YouTube video out and said, call me. And they called me. <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah, they are. Yeah. We, uh, you know, it's funny. I offered a 16-week course and one of the challenges that i would have now to modernize that is that a lot of the stuff was flash based well adobe has scuttled mm. the flash format so when you were talking there glenn i just quickly had a thought about what it would cost to actually redo those flash images and it would be tens of thousands of dollars yeah you know it's yeah. people don't understand education i have a rule it takes me an hour to develop one slide and people are going, what, 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 one hour? Look, at when you, by the time you do the research work, you create the graphics, put the whole thing together, practice the presentation just to make sure the thing runs smooth, makes sense. It's an hour a slide. I don't care who you are. If you're not putting an hour into a slide, you're, you're not hitting the benchmark. Yeah. So you think about for a 60, for an hour presentation, well, depending on how you what, what the content is, it could be anywhere between you know say thirty to sixty slides. That's sixty thirty to sixty hours. That's a yeah. week worth of work at whatever your going rate is. So education putting together good, like you said, stellar content is not is not cheap stuff. Like it's it no. costs money, but it's hugely valuable stuff if it's, it's delivered huge. and taken yeah. on board in the right way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a good way of also codifying knowledge, right? So you know you win the lottery, decide you don't want to do this anymore, your knowledge is still out there, right? That's yeah. the point. Again, in this age of the internet and digital products, there's a way of codifying people's knowledge and not losing it when they go away. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's yeah. something I don't think people, that industry or society has really latched onto properly yet. You know, yeah. there's, is this the future library of Alexandra? Is it digital? Oh, that was a good, yeah. do you see that, that link there? That stretch, that was a stretch, right? <laughs> It's a fantastic way to give something back to the industry, I think. You know, once I recognized that I could have earned more in my career in a senior sort of yeah. project role on actual live construction projects, I have absolutely no regrets with the sort of career path that I've chosen. I've had a huge amount of sort of yeah. personal flexibility, really good work-life balance. And let's say with the training courses that I've delivered, with the books that I've written, I've given something back to this incredible industry that we yeah. work in. So for me, it's... well. Yes, really meaningful work, you know. Well, listeners also need to understand, and again, this is just me speaking based on the my career, is that people that are in the education business, although when you think about the time you put in and the, and the fees you get to develop a book, no one's getting rich. And the reason why no one gets rich doing it is because the people who are writing the education, they care and they give everything that they can yeah. to make the content, which means you dilute your fee. I, I don't know anybody that's in the education world that has written, got a fee for writing a book. Of course, the fees are diluted by the hours that they put in because they want it to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. that is so true. But that's just to uh, talk about like the lifestyle and a career, right? So a career in this business also, Glenn, you're an example of you could have gone, you could have stayed at Bechtel, gone up the greasy pole, be a senior VP of the world or whatever they call it in Bechtel, you know. It's normally something mega, right? Or, yeah. and you'd have probably be earning uh, half a million a year living in America, all that stuff, right? And you chose a lifestyle-based career where you can work at home in your secret bunker at the bottom of your garden, you know, and mm -hmm. you can create content, add to the summer knowledge, 
memorialized knowledge, right? And you're still okay, making a living, doing well, right? Yeah. So there's ability in this business to be anything and everything, right? You can be a technician, you could be a practitioner, you could be an engineer, you could be a doctor, you could yeah. be an educator. You know, there are so many ways to go. More I think about the interview we did with Steve Burrows, where he said it is just the most awesome business in the world. He's actually right, you know. Yeah. I really, that jarred me when he first said it, because I'm a bit of a cynical asshole. But, you know, he's absolutely right. It's never been a bad time to be in this business. There's so much going on, technology and development. And there's so many ways you can grow and be in it. You can find your space, right? And I think you're a good example of that, Glenn. Yeah, I've only ever wanted to work in the built environment or in education. So now I've got the perfect hybrid. Yeah. I'm working in the two professions that I've always wanted to work in. So for me, yeah. Well, one of the big differences is that you're not a hundred percent, you're not a pure academic. Like you have experience. Yeah. You know, you've been screamed at, you know how to use tools, you you know, you know how to communicate. Like you're in someone in your position, your own diversity and knowledge and skills is incredibly valuable. Like Adam and I have talked about this before is that, you know, students can go in, they can get a university degree or a diploma, whatever. And some of the professors have never stepped a foot. I shouldn't say never stepped a foot, but rarely stepped a foot onto a job site. Now you were right yeah. first time, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and until you've been on a job site and you've worn your rubber boots and you're, yeah. I remember my, some of my first experiences, I was just a young kid. I was maybe 19 years, not even that, I was probably 18 and I was working for a geotechnical engineering company as a technician, and I was out doing sampling, concrete sampling. And before I left the lab, the, the manager said, if those buggers are watering down the concrete mix, you got to stop the pour. Well, of course, at 18 years old and going to your first job site, you have no idea who you're going to tell to stop pouring, right? As it turns out, I get to the job site, and there's like these Italian guys that are like 60 years old who are like built like brick shithouses, and I'm about to tell these guys to stop pouring. Right. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Me with my pimples and my rubber boots. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. I don't say on the bottom of a pore, right? What I would say to you too is it's important that you don't set me up as some sort of hero because the real heroes in my discipline, at least, are the people that are actually doing the building services and commissioning work sure on real are. life construction projects. You know, that's to a large degree, a lot more difficult actually do it in real practical terms on projects. You know, I'd like to think that to some degree I'm helping them do a little bit of a better job, but yeah, I don't want to portray myself as any sort of industry Dude, hero. Stop being like British. This, you know? Look, you're, we're not seeing him as a hero, but what we're trying to highlight is, and you're a good example of this, there's a hundred ways to have a great career in this business. A thousand yeah. ways to have I, a great career I in this business. I would recommend young people yeah. should consider very strongly going into this incredible industry that we work yeah. in. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, You've made it work and you've zigzagged along and it's great. And But also you are an anomaly, right? In the, again, you're the only guy in the whole world doing this. It's the best kept secret in the world. It's one of the reasons I want you to come on here and let people know about it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Brits are great. I love them. I am one. But they are awful at putting themselves out there and letting people know what they're doing. <laughs> you know what That's I mean? a fair enough point, I think, yeah. So, you know, You've got unique knowledge. You've got a way to get it out there. We've just got to get people to know you're there, right? And this is one yeah. of the ways I wanted, wanted to do that. I really enjoyed the two days on your course. It was great. I managed not to showboat too much. It was awesome. I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> <laughs> you're good at that, Adam. 
Yeah, I, I'm a good enjoying myself. I can tell you that. I, I, well, Glenn, you, you probably don't know the story, but Adam and I met at a course. Actually, he came in to take a. I, what was it? It was a four day. Hydronic. I can't remember. It was just so long ago. It was some course I do for an exam. Yeah, and so I was talking about uh, valve authority, and Adam was the only person in the audience who knew what valve authority is and knew who Robert Pettijon was. Yeah, but he didn't say anything. You know, he was humble, sitting there just listening. Adam, I don't think you actually, maybe if you went to sleep, it was for a few seconds only. I was but. asleep until you went through valve authority. I thought, oh, I was that in North America. That woke me up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, good time. So listen, mate, we're coming up on time. We normally finish with a quick fire question from each of us, right? Do you want to go first, Robert? Yeah. I, so Glenn, I, when I think about your career, and again, well, we always try to leave some messages for particularly the young people who are trying to figure out their path in the industry, if you were standing in front of, you know, a graduating class back at your own university, mm-hmm. you were delivering the commencement speech, what would your advice be to them, the new students? I would say to consider it really seriously. Yeah. Because as we've said, it's incredibly fascinating. There's a huge variety of roles that you can do in the built environment. And it plays an absolutely crucial role in actually making the world work on a day-to-day basis. That human life as we know it now, whether it be the delivery of healthcare, the delivery of education, sporting events, entertainment events we go to, transport from A to B, country to country, you know, communicating in the manner that we're doing now, none of that would exist at all without the built environment and specifically in the world that we've been talking about today, the building services and the commissioning. So yeah. Get into it. It's really, really interesting, really rewarding. And I think if you're motivated and you're of a decent quality, you'll never be out of work either. Yeah, that's that's the point, right? Yeah. I mean, we're all of a certain age here and we probably could all work till the day we drop down dead if we wanted to, right? Yeah. And that's that's another, believe it or not, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, anyone who's listening. So my question, Glenn, is what do you think we should be talking about as an industry that we're not talking about? Mm, Yeah, good Commissioning. (laughs) But it's important to what we mean with commissioning. You know, commissioning is not this set of nod twiddling activities, you know, that we do on a construction site. Yeah. It's this process of assurance that starts pre-design, continues through design on site, and then extends into a building's operational rise. So yeah. Commissioning is what we're talking about because if we get commissioning right, everybody wins. Nobody's ever going to lose if we get commissioning right. Yeah. No, well, obviously, I cannot disagree with that for a second. <laughs> it's a great, great question, a great answer. And, and we've talked about this actually with people on the show and even in our own circles that when you look at a design team, when they're starting the original, the first designs, the concepts designs, that you need to have a commissioning professional on that team. Yeah. I can't think of, you know, a more important individual than the commissioning professional to be on that original team. Yeah. One of the things that I say to the students that come on, you know, the people that come onto my courses is, is that why would any client in any construction project team spend 99% of all of their effort, money, resources, and then cut corners on the 1% of commissioning (laughs) when that 1% is so fundamentally important to making all of that other 99% yeah. do what it needs to do, perform as required, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Soft services, mate, always a problem. 
So listen, Glenn, well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for coming on. We will put in the show notes all your contact coordinates so people can rush over to you and swarm you with requests for training, okay? <laughs> all right. Thank you very much for your help. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate okay. it. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless. Increase efficiency and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. The future promised real-time monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with Sensor Suite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? Sensor Suite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android, and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to sensorsuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show. I love the gems that our guests throw out. Glenn talked about the pyramids and the, <laughs> the stick building. And, I, and, I, and he's right. I mean, you, you can just make a picture of the ancient Egyptians that, well, anybody back in those days that were building pyramids, very much the same strategy today. <laughs> Hasn't changed, you know. They still used, you know, fulcrums and pulleys and yeah. friction, overcoming friction, and it's the same thing. And it's just like, yep, we build buildings like the pyramids. <laughs> he made a comment. He made, and I'll let you deal with one about the cyclical nature of the business. I thought yeah. it was brilliant and I'll let you yeah. get on to that one but he also made another one about dead useless carcasses of buildings <laughs> and he again absolutely right without building services the commissioning the con- the con- concern for the safety and the health uh, comfort of the occupants that is that's you're just building carcasses of buildings he had some really interesting insights there so one let's just get it out there are the pyramids like the most famous construction job ever in all of mankind? Yeah. Probably, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I just love that. I love the fact everything always goes back to the pyramids at some point, right? Well, I mean, if you asked any kid, like any kid in whatever grade, grade five, grade six, whatever, how the pyramids were built, yeah. they can tell you that. To ask them how a building is built today, 
not a chance, but they can tell you about the pyramids. Yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. That always makes me giggle when it comes up. But his sure. insight on the demand curve as a as a source of instability. Yeah, and one think- of the reasons there's a lack of investment and standardization. Because, yeah, I never thought of it that way. You can't, it's really hard to justify, you know, an investment in a production facility if the production can go to zero one year and a thousand the next year. <laughs> it's just like, it's not tenable, is it? Yeah. You know, that, that, was, that was a really great observation. And, yeah. you know, I mean, there are examples like the motor home or mobile home industry. Yeah. And, you know, I say that with with a grin because it's evolved. I mean, today the quality of I mean, they've changed the standards, they've changed the requirements for building these these structures. And the ones that of course that are built in, you know, places that have that are subjected to tornadoes and water damage, like they're, you know, we can't use them as much anymore as the sort of the you know, the low end of housing. Because no, no, half of the longest a longest time represented the low end of housing, but now that has changed. But in terms of making mobile homes, you know they would inventory them. They would the, the the cyclical process was some as I talked about in the interview suppressed. But with these bigger buildings, public buildings, and you're right, like in the cyclical nature of construction prevents you know good investment money into the into the industry. I like that stat you brought up about how long it takes to build a ocean liner, super ocean liner. Yeah. You know, that is, if you've got a link for that, send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes because that is amazing because the, the complexity on that is amazing. Yet in two years, they can do it. Well, when you think, so if you took a high rise and you take the cruise liner, it would be easy to park the cruise liner in a dock permanently. Yeah. Right. Or if need be to move it someplace else. You can't say that with a high rise. Huh? So the complexity for the ship, it's it's a mobile, for all intents and purposes, it's a mobile high rise in terms of yeah. the construction budget. It's far more complex. It serves a far more larger, diverse population than a high rise ever will. I mean, the it's just in a different scale, and yet you can move it around the world. It's nuts. When you make that comparison, then you realize how much space there is for improvement in the construction industry. (laughs) Absolutely. Because think about it, the cruise industry, all right, the demand curve is flatter, but it still goes up and down. Yeah. Yeah, It's a a bit boom and bust, certainly after COVID, but even before that was a bit boom and bust. So that was a a fantastic insight as well. I really like that. The reason I like Glenn and what he does is his training, I found his course really good because he he gives that mix of like practical and academic in it, right? You don't have to be an academic to go and you don't have to be a tradesman or a practitioner to go. It it can work for both of them groups just as well. So what he's talking about is delivery as well. It was just really well done. I think he's a very underappreciated educator. Yeah. So Well, then that's why I asked the question about just explaining to our audience who Bizria is and Sipsi is, you know, because... Those are some of the top-notch associations and yeah. organizations in the world of, of building property development. And for an individual to be invited or to volunteer and get accepted in the volunteer process, that just says a lot. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, he's published several uh, articles and done several research projects for them. So, you know, you got to be good enough to get on that platform and then stay there, right? That tells you something about how good Glenn is. 
Yeah, and what the what the audience also needs to understand is that when you write a book for an organization, it's not the organization's not looking for an amateur. They're not looking for this to be your very first publication. Like yeah. there, there's a criteria, and I know because I've I've been the chair of of a couple of books and the committees reviewing the books. And there's a criteria like within Asher, like you have to be able to demonstrate that this is something you've done before. You're yeah. not going to experiment with your literary experience, you know, on an organization yeah. that's going to give you, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop a, a document. Yeah. So in order to even be invited says, mm-hmm. okay, well, this person is experienced. They have the ability to take the money that we're about to release to them and produce a document that industry can use that has yeah. some value. So that you know, our audience needs to understand this. This is not child's play we're talking about. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point as well. But yeah, I, I just I'm a big fan of Glenn, and I like the lifestyle he's got. So yeah, he's got his house, and then he gets up in the morning, has his coffee, and he just wanders to the end of the garden. He's got like this Joe Rogan podcast bunker type thing. Yeah, and he's yeah. got his office in there, and he's just you know. He's in there, and that's his commute. It's like the length of his garden. It's awesome. What a great life, right? And then he goes out, does some consulting work, does some teaching work. As a lifestyle for an engineer and a practitioner, it's great because he's got got the best of all worlds. You know, he's working from home when he wants. He's out on site when he wants, and he's out in a classroom when he wants. That's not a bad place to wind up in your career, right? No, and there's, you know, and again, going back to the industry, right? It offers those opportunities for those that want to create or invent themselves into that role. That's what he's done, you know? Yeah. And I, again, create your job, right? Create the job you want. Yeah. That is possible. Anyone listen here, you, you've got to learn. You've got to go through your time. There's no shortcut out. But once yeah. you're through it, you can sort of create the job you want in a way once you get credibility. There's not many places you can do that. You know, a doctor's a doctor. A doctor's got to go to the office or he's got to go to the hospital, right? Yeah, he can create his job, I guess, to be a concierge doctor, but it's a bit more rigid. I don't know. I like lifestyle design and lifestyle, not hacks, but, you know, being able to make your work fit around your lifestyle. Yeah. A profession that can do that, that is a real value add. It's really underappreciated. It makes life better. You know, it just makes your quality of life better. Yeah. And I and I think you, you made a really good point there, and that is that you do have to put in your time. You can't graduate at 25 and go, I'm going to be Glenn now. No, that don't work. <laughs> he, he had to go out, you know, work at Bechtel, learn the ropes. You know, he had to go through all that learning curve. But he was still a relatively young man, you know, when he made the transition more to a lifestyle type job. It wasn't like he, you know, he's not in his 20s, but he's not in his 50s either. You know what I mean? You know, yes, you've got, there's no, anyone says there's no shortcut in the learning process. You've got to go to college. You've got to pass exams and you've got to learn your craft, whatever yeah. it is. No way which around is, that. Which is why I liked it. Like when I first read his bio and I thought you had to actually click to get further information yeah. about his history. Cause I was reading his, the bio and then there was, you know, click here for more. And that's what his, his very first story was, well, you know, enrolled in a four year apprentice program for uh, service building service engineering. He started as a maintenance apprentice. Yeah. Like, right. yeah. I love that story. And that's kind of like Peter Simmons' story too. You yeah. know, like I started out, you know, on the, on the tools. Guy gets yeah. his doctorate degree and now, he, you know, that guy's like these I mean, individuals you, are, they've got depth. If you've got 17-year-old Glenn to see a picture of Glenn now, they go, that's not impossible, is it? I'm changing filters. What's going on here? You know what I mean? But it is possible. This is the thing, right? Yeah, you know, Peter Simmons, you know, he's on the tools and you're showing Peter Simmons now. You go, I did that? 
You know, it's not, <laughs> who is that guy? <laughs> but it's true, right? Everything is possible. I love the possibility that everything is possible. That is, anyway, yeah. we should end on that. Yeah, everything is possible in your career. You that's just got to own word, it man. and make it happen. Absolutely. And it ain't a straight line, and that's all right. Okay, that gets unedited. That is the truth told to you yeah. by Adam Muggleton Yoda. Boom. All right, <laughs> see you on the next one. <laughs> yeah, right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.